0: Why is the shopping cart always in the top right of the screen?
1: How do companies predict my purchases?
0: Why do prices end in nine? Why do fast food companies use red and yellow in their logos? Why do restaurants always have one expensive menu item? Researchers, marketers, and very curious people seek the answers for how we make decisions and how we choose products. ClickSuasion finds the secrets that companies use and shares them with you.
1: Why do I feel better when I bought the last remaining airline ticket?
0: How do I make choices based on colors and fonts? Hurricanes occur every year, and sometimes two or three hurricanes can be active at the same time. Using names for these storms makes it much more easier for meteorologists, researchers, emergency response workers, ship captains, and citizens to communicate about specific hurricanes and be clearly understood. For that reason, the World Meteorological Association or organization I should say, develops a list of names that are assigned in alphabetical order to tropical storms as they are discovered in each hurricane season. Names can be repeated after an interval of 6 years, but the names of especially severe storms are permanently retired. One of the suasion contributors for this episode comes from the National Center for Atmospheric Research.
2: Um, my passion is really helping improve weather forecast benefit society. I'm trained as an atmospheric scientist, so I work, in weather prediction, weather predictability, and improving forecasts of hazardous weather. And I found that there is a lot of information that the weather community has that can really benefit people that they're not using in the best ways that they can. And so my passion is really to link those two communities to help the weather forecasters provide information that can be more useful to communities in making decisions to protect themselves. Rebecca Morse, National Center for Atmospheric Research.
0: In the Atlantic Ocean, tropical storms that reach a sustained wind speed of 39 miles per hour are given a name such as tropical storm Fran. If the storm reaches a sustained wind speed of 74 miles per hour, it is called a hurricane such as hurricane Fran. So hurricanes are not given names, tropical storms are given names and they retain their name if they develop into a hurricane. Looking back at the origins, names have been given to Atlantic hurricanes for a few hundred years. People living in the Caribbean islands named storms after the saint of the day from the Roman Catholic calendar for the day on which the hurricane occurred, such as Hurricane Michael. When two hurricanes struck on the same date in different years, the hurricanes would be referred to by names such as Hurricane Michael I and Hurricane Michael II. In the early days of meteorology in the U.S., storms were named with a latitude-longitude designation representing the location where the storm originated. These names were difficult to remember, difficult to communicate, and subject to errors. During the Second World War, military meteorologists working in the Pacific began to use women's names for storms. The naming method made communication so easy that in 1953, it was adopted by the National Hurricane Center for use on storms originating in the Atlantic Ocean. Once this practice started, hurricane names quickly became part of a common language, and public awareness of hurricanes increased dramatically. In 1978, meteorologists watching storms in the eastern North Pacific began using men's names for half of the storms. Meteorologists for the Atlantic Ocean began using men's names in 1979. For each year, a list of 21 names, each starting with a different letter of the alphabet, was developed and arranged in alphabetical order. Names beginning with the letters Q, U, X, Y, and Z were not used. The first tropical storm of the year was given the name beginning with the letter A, the second with the letter B, and so on through the alphabet. During even-numbered years, men's names were were given to the odd-numbered storms. During odd-numbered years, women's names were given to the odd-numbered storms. Now, hurricane names could be retired. The only change that is made to the list of Atlantic hurricane names is the occasional retirement of a name. This is done when a hurricane causes so much death and destruction that reuse of the same name would be insensitive to the people who suffered losses. It could also be confusing. When that happens, the World Meteorological Organization replaces the name. For example, Katrina has been retired from the name list and will not be used again. A list of hurricane names that have been retired since the current name list was established in 1979 and is also displayed on the NOAA website. In addition to retirements, there are a few names that were simply changed. For example, on the 2007 list, the names Dean, Felix, Felix, and Knoll were replaced with Dorian, Fernand, and Nestor for the 2013 list. Well, what if there are more than 21 named storms? There are normally fewer than 21 named storms in any calendar year. In the rare years when more than 21 storms are named, the additional storms are given names from the Greek alphabet, Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, and so on, and used for their names. Tropical storms occur in the Pacific Ocean and meteorologists working there have developed naming systems for them. Naming, separate naming systems are maintained for eastern North Pacific storms, central North Pacific storms, western north pacific storms see a pattern going on here the australian region the fiji region papua new guinea philippine region the northern indian ocean and the southwest indian ocean sounds like a lot of track the national hurricane center maintains lists and the names used in these areas good for them because i already lost track understanding human needs and knowing why people behave the way they do can help organizations build the right things sooner Behavioral scientists mitigate future I'm sorry mitigate failure and decrease industry waste. We are living in a time of notification overload which not only makes it harder for the government and journalists to reach the populace but too many notifications can be destructive for our ability to focus. Behavioral scientists understand human attention, perception, cognition and decision making, all critical to how figuring out to differentiate your offering from the rest. There is no doubt that behavior designers have a responsibility to create good, create things for good, and that they are better than most at changing behavior. Effective behavior design is not a linear process, though it does require rapid experimentation. Behavioral scientists know how to experiment, and many companies use behavioral science to make the world a better place, such as ClickSuasion Labs, Lemonade, and Decision Fish. A recent study about hurricane names and their persuasive qualities took place along the southeastern United States and the Gulf Coast. Homeowners who lived in in, in their current home for at least 10 consecutive years in Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana, within 100 miles of the coast from Fort Lauderdale all the way to Lake Charles, Louisiana, participated in this study. The individuals represented um, oh, sorry, the, re- the individuals were presented with a random scenario. The scenarios included a name storm of a specific severity and included the name of the storm. The storms held traditional names such as Michael, Anthony, Mark, Jennifer, Sarah, and Sydney. Others included names that were more fearful. And then we measured the participants' willingness to evacuate. We've discover- discovered that Hurricane Sandy, Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Maria are just too nice of names. We all have an Aunt Sandy or a neighbor named Maria, and we don't like to associate them with a terrifying hurricane. Okay, I won't speak for all neighbors. By changing hurricane names from traditional names to something a little more terrifying, like Hurricane Hellbender, Hurricane Circe, or Hurricane Hannibal, we've learned that many more people are likely to evacuate. Words, names, and message framing could alter our perceptions, improve customer experiences, and potentially save lives. Here's how Kara Cute, researcher at Rutgers University, was affected by Hurricane Sandy.
1: Personally, it affected me in that I was planning to go to a conference in Minnesota, and my flight was canceled, and I had to stay home. Uh, Beyond that, we had power outages in my town. I don't live along the coast, so we had power outages in my town, uh we had one scary night with a lot of fires starting in the town. Uh one a couple houses away from me there was a downed electrical wire. Um but I think I got off w- really easy and I have a lot of friends who uh live on the coast in New Jersey and in New York. Um my best friend's husband was missing <laughs> for a while. Um, During the storm, he chose—they lived two houses off the beach, and he chose to not evacuate and stay home, and no one was able to get in touch with him, which was a very scary experience, although the rest of his family evacuated. Um, And in one area in New York where my best friend lives, where uh, my family had a beach house for my entire life— a number of friends that I had grown up with, their houses burned down, their parents' houses burned down, um, and different friends' parents had to be evacuated in the middle of the storm on surfboards, um, because there were fires all around them. And, um, you know, it was too deep to walk. So I know a lot of people who were directly affected, but I feel like, um, my family and I were very lucky that, that, um, It was just a a big storm without any flooding or any real personal impacts beyond what happened to my friends. Kara Cute, Rutgers University.
0: Why is this effective? From Aristotle to modern economies and beyond, it has been recognized that pain and pleasure are critical motivators. We experience desire which gives us pleasure and fear out of that which causes us pain. And research suggests that the use of threats that cause anxiety and other forms of fear are about negative consequences depicted in the message. You do not have to cause pain to create fear. The human frontal cortex has a primary function in thinking about the future. We are quite skilled at imagining what might happen and experiencing anticipatory emotions. This has proved helpful in our evolution. But it can also cause problems as anticipated fear of things that may not happen, cause us stress, and allow others to persuade us. Here is some insight from Clicksway agent contributor Cara Cute. With
1: fear-based messages, there are a couple of big concerns. One big concern is that people will think that you're overblowing whatever the the, the thing that you're trying to get them to do is whatever that, that big fear is about. Um, if you use language that's too scary or, or too over the top. So there's a fear that some people will ignore you. If you, if you make a dramatic fear-based message, there's also the concern that people will get overwhelmed, you know, that some people will believe you and they will be absolutely overwhelmed and unable to act if you have a message that's too scary for them so that they end up managing their fear rather than managing whatever that dangerous situation is so if you scare people too much about a storm they might sit there and do and and, and try to avoid thinking about it to avoid that fear rather than thinking in a more calm way about, well, how can we evacuate from the storm or, or do whatever it is that, that, that the communicator is trying to, to, to tell me to do. So whether it's the concern that people will think that it's overblown or people will think, or people will be too overwhelmed for it by, by the message. Those are the two main concerns. I think that communicators have when they're using fear-based messages, but when it comes to hurricanes and other coastal storms, nor'easters and the like, um, I think a lot of emergency commu- emergency managers and, and um, other folks who are in charge of communicating, it feels, I think it's an intuitive type of message where if there really is a big situation happening and you really do want people to evacuate, they want to have dramatic messages. Um, there was one just in March of 2018 up in Boston where the mayor was saying, um, you know, this is a life and death situation. There are other messages, um, you know, if you do not evacuate, you will die. You know, those types of messages, I think it's it's an intuitive message that people want to get out. Like, I need to tell these people that if they don't evacuate, they may die. This is real. This is, we're not playing around. Um, so we do see in some of the bigger storms, where that that really direct life and death type of messaging um, will come out, um, I think that there are there are, uh, any message that is going to scare people. It's absolutely imperative that you tell them what it is that they can do to reduce that danger, and that's where the messages about when to evacuate, how to evacuate, where are the shelters, you know, which which roads. I mean, down to the specifics of which roads sh- they should take to evacuate, all of that is so critical because if you just give the scary message and you don't pair that with the information that people need so that they know how to do what it is that you're telling them to do, it it will fail. But once you can Or will often fail. But once you can give people that complimentary information, you can get their attention. You say, look, this is, this is potentially going to kill people. You can get their attention that way, but it needs to be followed up with that important, how to deal with this threat information. And we, we often do see that every now and then we don't, but, but usually um, we see that combination and that's, what's really critical to help people, not just to scare them, but to motivate them to respond to whatever message
0: it is that you're sending out. An appeal to fear is not always successful because we are relatively complex in our thinking. For example, not only does fear make us want to reduce it, it also makes us want to do so with dignity. Here's Rebecca Morse with with insights about message framing.
2: I would say one thing that's very important is to differentiate your messaging according to what people should do. So. There are populations right along the coast that really should evacuate and there are people further inland that don't need to evacuate unless they're really sensitive to loss of power or other kinds of considerations or potentially are disabled or have another issue that would make it difficult to adapt if there are impacts such as loss of power or not being able to get emergency services or medicines or so on. And so you want to f- find a way to figure out how to communicate to the people at highest risk that they really do need to leave because these kinds of bad things could happen. Not that they're going to happen, but they are are likely to happen or have a chance of happening, and so you want people to get out so that they're not in those bad situations. But you don't want them having to evacuate through all the traffic of everyone else evacuating. And so that has been a challenge in some situations, that there's an over-evacuation, and that makes it difficult for the people that really need to evacuate to get out. So you also want to do the messaging in a way that tells the people who are not right along the coast, not the highest risk, that they should make sure they have medicine, food, water, prepared for power outages, and they should really only evacuate if there's a situation where they would really be sort of medically dependent or were um, really dependent on transportation, dependent on um, power and those kinds of things that only certain populations would need to evacuate. Rebecca Morse, National Center for Atmospheric Research.
0: The fight or flight reaction effectively means that when people experience fear, we may either run away or fight back. Flight is theoretically a possibly useful response in that the persuader is like a sheepdog, nudging others in the right direction. Yet, people can indeed be like sheep, which they are likely to flee in random directions, making the sheepdog's work very exhausting. Flight can also be cognitive, and various coping mechanisms may be used, such as denial. Fighting back is also common and can be very subtle. There are many ways of resisting persuasion that are not always obvious, but will ultimately frustrate the persuader. A third route, freezing. Much as a rabbit caught in the headlights, particularly if the threat is seen as extreme and with no obvious solution. Motivationally, this is not helpful, as it means the other person does nothing, which is almost as bad as running in the wrong direction. Here are some insights about fear-based messages from ClickSuasion contributor Rebecca Morse.
2: Well, fear-based messages are used in a wide variety of risk communication areas. Um, for example, when I think back to the nineteen eighties, when I was a teenager, you know, the drug messaging back then—they had this, you know, the commercial with "This is your brain on drugs" and things like that. So, mean, fear messages used in a wide variety of contexts, and there has been research showing that they're not always effective. And so, um, in Um, the weather field, there's been concern that when a hurricane evacuation order or a tornado warning or something like that is issued, that people aren't doing what they should do to protect themselves. And so the weather community has also started using some fear-oriented messaging by communicating dramatic impacts. And so we had the concern that that might have some of the negative impacts that have been seen in other risk communication fields. Rebecca Morse, National Center for Atmospheric Research.
0: It is also important to understand how The people you are persuading respond to fear. There are many different responses and a threat to one person may have no effect to another. However, people could react badly and just not the reaction you want to have. This uh, variability um, is one reason why broad fear appeals are so hazardous and can easily rebound. A potentially adverse reaction to fear-based messages are shadow evacuations.
1: When people who shouldn't be evacuating do evacuate, and that's often referred to as shadow evacuation. So people in areas that don't need to evacuate do evacuate, and they end up clogging up the roads. They end up Filling up the shelters, you know, using resources that would be better used for people who were much more at risk, who really were being asked to evacuate. So, by being geographically specific, a lot of times um, we're able to to target and and get those folks who should be evacuating evacuated, while leaving those people who would be safe sheltering in place, staying in their in their homes. Kara, cute, Rutgers University.
0: And with fear comes ethics. I'll close by suggesting Brett Weisel's 10-10-10 methodology. Brett Weisel is the co-founder of Decision Fish, and he suggests that you ask yourself three questions. How will I feel about my decision in 10 minutes? How will I feel about my decision in 10 months? And how will I feel about my decision in 10 years? This is Michael Barbera. Subscribe to ClickSuasion wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll let you know when the next episode is available. Thanks for listening to ClickSuasion. Subscribe to the podcast, read our research, and get in touch with us at clicksuasion.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at clicksuasion.